Well, hey, welcome to All Packed Up, the Pack Meal Podcast. Today, we got Kansas, Hunter. Haley's off camera, but she's always around. And uh, hey, Haley. <laughs> and today, we're joined by Owen Fitzsimmons of yeah. the... Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Who does? Uh, Webless Migratory Game Bird Program Leader. That's what my title is. But yeah, doves. And for the non-academic <laughs> people out there, what does that mean? Yeah, uh, mostly cover doves. I'm kind of the statewide lead for monitoring and management of doves. But I also cover a number of other species, uh, sandhill cranes, woodcock, snipe, rails, and gallinules. You know, I was talking to Haley before you got here, and I looked you up on LinkedIn. And I got to say, the most surprising thing to me was, A, how young and good looking you were well, thank for you. being a dove <laughs> biologist. <laughs> um, so I thought that was kind of funny. But we wanted to have you out here, you know, here on All Packed Up. We talked about getting outside, being outside, with it being dove season. Um, I just thought it'd be really cool. And you were, you were referred to us as someone to have on here by Matt Hughes mm-hmm. over at TWA, mm-hmm. uh, Texas Wildlife Association. And, uh, we just want to talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got there and, uh, what the outdoors looks like in your life. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, so absolutely. I'd love to just go a little bit on the journey of like, you know, that long title, uh, <laughs> non-migratory birds, right? Webless migratory game birds. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get to there? You know, how do you choose those birds? Uh, Well, my whole career, uh, I've always been an outdoors person, you know, grew up in Northeast Texas hunting and fishing. Uh, We had some land that backed up to a bunch of timber company land, uh, five or 600 acres that wasn't really, nobody was out there. And so as a kid, I ran around in the woods every chance I got chasing squirrels and deer and and birds. And uh, I actually went to college for uh, mechanical engineering and I okay. ended up at Texas A&M Kingsville, which is a, a really well-known wildlife school. And uh, after a week in in uh, in mechanical engineering classes, I was like, hey, this is not what I thought it was. Uh, what else can I do? And I, I started looking through and I was like, wildlife. That didn't even occur to me that I could do that. Mm. And so I immediately switched uh, after one week of classes, never looked back. You know, ever since the start, I've always been uh, just interested in birds and migratory birds in general. You know, the fascination with a bird that can move tens of thousands of miles a year, you know, that's the size of a Coke can or smaller. It's just, yeah, yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. So that's kind of how over the years I ended up where I'm at. And I've been here for six years in this position. Okay. And you were working on ranches and stuff before that and doing some other things? Yeah. As a wildlife student in Kingsville, at A&M Kingsville, you got a lot of opportunities. You studied wildlife biology? Mm -hmm. Range and wildlife management technically. And so- so you made it through both organic chemistries? Yeah, yeah, I did. See, uh, see, uh, for anybody that's exploring colleges and careers right now, I was in uh, at Texas State uh, under the wildlife biology program. And, um, you know, organic chemistry apparently wasn't my strong suit. I studied really hard. I just couldn't figure it out on tests. And the professor came to me and was like, hey, I don't think this is your path. You need to do something else. And, and I changed my major because the organic chemistry professor told me that I needed to, and I made no other consideration. <laughs> and I'm, and I, I look back and I'm like, that is the most ridiculous thing ever. That guy should have figured out how to help me get through it right. because I understand organic chemistry is important, but it's not the baseline of what you end up doing as right. a wildlife biologist. Right. And so, um, uh, so hats off to you. You made it through. <laughs> Double I, organic. I had a bigger problem with inorganic, okay. believe it or not. It, for some reason, organic sort of made sense. Inorganic was just mumbo jumbo to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to laugh about, uh, I used to call it a, a pseudoscience. It's like, show me 
show me a jewel, show me a whatever. Yeah, they, yeah. They would get really mad about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so you got out and you were working on some ranches and mm-hmm. and 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 was that because you were uh sort of waiting for another job or you were practicing wildlife biology on ranches? No, um you know, AM Kingsville, and if you anybody who's never been to Kingsville, that's the town that's kind of associated with the King Ranch, obviously. And um there's a lot of leases on the King Ranch. There's the King Ranch itself, there's other uh nearby ranches. So there's a lot of opportunities for a wildlife student. To, lead, to be even in that program still enrolled and have opportunities to go practice what you just learned on a, on a ranch, on a, on a property. And for me, that was kind of, I got an opportunity um, to help start a waterfowl kind of guiding program, hunting program on this one lease. And uh, at first it was just a guiding thing just for the, the season. And I, pretty soon I got hired on full time and I did that for, I don't know, four or five years uh, on this private lease. And that was the... Hannah from Hanna Barbera cartoons. Yeah, it was Dave Hanna was the guy that, that leased that. It's the Ojo de Agua lease. Wow. On uh, the Lorellis division just south of Corpus Christi. Wow. On yeah, really cool. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, that property twenty thousand acres borders the Laguna Madre just north of Baffin Bay. Wow. So uh, we did a lot of fishing. We did. I mean, it was a paradise for a twenty yeah. one year old no wildlife kidding. guy. You know, no kidding. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. What made you stop doing that? Um, I ended up getting a master's degree. Okay. Um, I wanted to, you know, there's a lot of people in that, that lifestyle, the, just the guiding and the hunting camp lifestyle. It's, it's a lot of work, you know, for me, like during those few years during the hunting season, I basically didn't have a day off, you know, and even if you did, you're just recovering from the 20 days beforehand where you're up at three o'clock in the morning you don't get to bed till 10 or 11 with all the guests that come through. And it's a tough lifestyle for anybody uh, after a while you kind of get run down. So for me, I wanted to do more research. I wanted to do more, uh, get away from the hunting side of it and more into wildlife and, uh, had an opportunity to go back to grad school. So I, that's what I did. That's awesome. Yeah. When, in, in grad schools where you chose like the specific birds and all of that stuff yeah. that you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I realized pretty quick through, uh, all the guiding and the hunting, hunting camp stuff that I was much more into waterfowl and, and birds, which I always have been. And so that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. And uh, originally my master's project was going to be a uh, radio telemetry study on least bitterns, which is a small secretive marsh bird. And I was super excited about that. And then that kind of fell through because literally we don't, we didn't know enough about them back then to say like, who knows that they might just go to Mexico and we can't follow the radios into Mexico. That was when all the cartel stuff had just started. And so the funding sources were like, no, we don't want to. I'm just a bird guy. Yeah. We don't want to, uh, we don't want to <laughs> risk losing all this money on this project. If those birds just leave. Yeah. And then we can't follow them for the rest of the year. So it ended up turning into a uh, kind of a wetland project for parks and wildlife who were the funders at the time looking at specifically at a couple of WMAs on the coast, like managed wetlands versus unmanaged wetlands and the different plant species, different bird species, what values each each type of wetland and the, that kind of diversity uh, across habitat types uh, brings to the wildlife, basically. And so it was a really cool project. I spent a lot of time in the marsh um, just kind of walking around, looking at birds and sampling plants and fighting off alligators and snakes. Yeah. And <laughs> Did you bring your binoculars here today? In the truck, yeah. <laughs> I never leave home without them, yeah. You know, I think of Texas Park and Wildlife, I think, you know, like Park Ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously there's a lot more that goes into that. Absolutely. Um, so like, what does that look like for you? Like, what are you, what does your position do to better the parks and wildlife in Texas? How that's does a, that kind of work? That's a really good question. And as someone who came up in the wildlife programs, uh, in college, you know, growing up, 
Parks and Wildlife to us was game wardens. That's yeah. kind of the face to a lot of people is the law enforcement side. Um, but there's several different divisions. We have, you know, coastal fisheries, inland fisheries, wildlife, which is what I'm in, state parks, uh, law enforcement, infrastructure, who, who helps us build uh, buildings and roads and everything else on our, on our properties, uh, HR, you know, you name it, all right. the support divisions. And so it's a huge agency. I think we have 3,000 plus 3,500 employees, maybe. I think, uh, I think, think we're the largest state agency, state wildlife agency in the country. Uh, wow. Don't quote me on that, but, but it's big. And so there's a lot that goes on that people don't realize as far as like job opportunities and things you can do to get involved. And so the wildlife side, which is what I'm in, obviously we take care of uh, wildlife management areas. We have district biologists across the state that cover certain counties and they work with private landowners because Texas is 97% privately owned. Yeah. The only way to do any habitat work is to work with those private landowners. And so that's kind of what they specialize in. Uh, my position is what we call a program position. So you have all these biologists out in the field and on certain WMA properties that do their work. But um, I kind of coordinate statewide monitoring, like say dove surveys. Uh, so I work with all these different biologists, you know, 100 plus biologists across the state to implement these surveys so that we can get an idea of how many doves we have in Texas, how many doves we're harvesting, you know, all these metrics that we use to kind of track population status and and uh, and inform our management decisions. If that answers your question. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah it is a lot. It's it's I think uh, people who want to get interested in animals or the out, out the outdoors, you know, park rangers, law enforcement, that's always kind of the face. But there's a lot more opportunities out there. It's like yeah. game wardens, right? Yeah. And you don't think a, about the conservation and the study and the research right. that you guys are conducting to say, yeah. yes, you can hunt that. You can or. Where yeah. are the dove going? Right. Yeah. Right. And especially for the non-game biologists, like I get put in the spotlight some, you know, before dove season, uh, dove season forecast and that kind of thing. And hunters might look me up, but for non-game biologists, they really run behind the scenes and they do a lot of great work. And I, you know, I think that's a, what a lot of young wildlife biologists don't realize is those kind of opportunities that exist in a state agency like this. It's really cool. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how does that translate to the, uh, your job to the fun side of it, you know, people want to know, Hey, uh, dove hunting looks real interesting. And, and from our perspective, you know, we want to encourage and inspire people to get outside. And, and, and I tell a lot of folks, uh, dove hunting is kind of the first and easiest way to start hunting if you're intrigued and interested in it. And, um, Texas is a great place to do that. And we have a lot of public lands. Um, how does, how does somebody, how does somebody from your perspective get in, get started on a dove hunting, uh, uh, day? Well, we have, Texas has, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 dove hunters a year. And that is about a third of the dove hunters in the entire United States. So wow. no other state, holy moly, no other two or three states combined even come close. That's incredible. To the number of hunters we have and subsequently the number of birds we harvest. So if you want to hunt doves, Texas really is the place to be. And is that because of the migratory flyway? Yeah, it's partly that. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of centrally located in the central flyway. So we catch all those birds coming down. We get a lot of birds from the Mississippi flyway, other flyways as well. But we're also just a big geographically diverse state yeah um and we're located kind of at the right latitude for for white wings and morning doves Mm -hmm. and white tips um so there's a lot of good opportunity here and uh and it's also something that's always been a tradition and kind of a historical thing in texas uh you know how many people do you know that's like the official start of hunting season yeah september one you know that's kind of an unofficial holiday right and so 
you know, I, I think out of those 300,000 people, the majority either started dove hunting as, as kids or they know someone who took them out on their property or they have some kind of mentor. But uh, more and more these days, as I think Texas has started to shift demographically more urban, you're starting to see a lot more adult hunters who um, just want to get into it and they don't really know how. And kind of like you said, dove hunting is kind of the gateway mm-hmm. because you really don't need much beyond just a gun and a place to go. Yeah. Doves are pretty easy to identify versus say waterfowl or yeah. they can be a real impediment trying to identify ducks on the wing. It's not like shooting a deer, which can be very intimidating for people, yeah. a big, you know, mammal, yeah. you know, with fur and blood and bone. More emotional. And, yeah. More yeah. emotional. And so, Doves offer a very easy entry uh, into the sport of hunting and, and plus it's fun. You know, you don't have to sit real still. If a kid or something, you take a yeah. kid, uh, you can move around, you can talk when the birds come in, it's a lot of action, you know, they're challenging to hit. And the other thing too, um, I got asked about this a while back is like how many birds get wounded. And I think more than any other, more than most other bird or other wing shooting sports, a dove, you're either going to hit it and it's going to go down or you're going to miss it. You know, we don't get a lot of those, like say in waterfowl where you knock some feathers off and they probably take some pellets and those things fly off. Yeah. Still strong. You know, they're probably going to die later. Yeah. So those wounding losses, I don't think are as big of a deal as it with doves. And so it's kind of like that instant gratification. Like if you hit it, you drop it, you know, and you see that. That's awesome. And so uh, from a public lands perspective, how does somebody go find some, some land and go hunt and know they're in the right spot. And yeah, uh, the best way to do it is just get on our website on uh, the public hunting page. And so there's a few different ways to, to do any kind of public land hunting in Texas. Um, we have our WMAs. So most of our WMAs, I should, maybe I shouldn't say that a lot of our WMAs offer dove hunting opportunities. Uh, we have a few WMAs that actually specialize in managed dove fields. Hmm. So there's uh, Las Palomas WMA, which is Spanish for doves, uh, in the valley. They we have uh, I don't remember how many acres, several different fields of cultivated black oil sunflower, mm-hmm. irrigated sunflower. Uh, so that's a huge uh, kind of a, a maniacal couple of days when the white wing season starts. Yeah. If, you've, if you've never seen that, you should get down there and try that. It's it's kind of crazy. How yeah. Just the clouds of white wings. Um, we have uh, the Roger Fawcett WMA, which is west of Fort Worth, right off I twenty. Uh, they have a, a couple of big annual sunflower fields that we fund. There's a uh, Mason mountain WMA, which is in Mason, Texas. They just acquired some new property that borders the WMA, uh, where they have a couple of dove fields. It's going to kind of be specialized for doves. And then we have just opportunities where, um, those are kind of our managed fields. Then we have WMAs that just do like, you know, they might do some native, uh, propagation just to mm-hmm. kind of get some dove field, uh, native dove fields going. So you've got those, um, you can always just call the WMA or get on the website and look at when you can go, uh, what the rules are. We also have, uh, what we call our annual public hunt walk-in areas. And so that's close to a million acres, I think total between WMAs and those. And so those are basically private lands that parks and wildlife leases so that you can have access to it. So you need an annual public hunting permit, which is $48 in addition to your license. Uh, but that'll grant you access to WMAs and also to these annual or these public walk-in areas which you can just go. I mean, just show up and go anytime you want yeah. um, within the time frame that it's leased. Uh, and those are scattered all across the state. And then finally, um, we have uh, some dove draw hunts. So we have a certain number of draw hunts that you pay for an entry. I think ours are $10 for the dove draw hunts. And these are basically, uh, we've worked, we work with certain outfitters across the state, kind of 
near uh, big metro areas, okay. San Antonio, Houston, Austin, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. And so we pay the outfitters for a certain number of spots. And then uh, if you, you pay $10 for your entry, and if you win, you basically get a $200 day hunt nice. to go out. And so that's been really successful. The hunters enjoy it because they get a really good dove hunt for $10. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them will do a repeat day the next day. And the outfitters really enjoy it because they get paid no matter what, if the, yep. you know, if the hunter shows up or not. Yeah. But they also get a lot of repeat customers yeah. as well. So that's been a successful program. We're going to try to expand on that some. Uh, but that's a really good way to get people out that may not have the funds or the, mm-hmm. you know, the options to do that. Do you find on, on the walk-in hunt spots, I guess the WMAs as well, that for dove hunting, that most people are pretty safety conscious. You, some people talk about being nervous to go out where it's just public and there's a bunch of random people out there with mm-hmm. guns. In my perspective, it's gotta be safe enough. Otherwise TPWD would have shut it down if there were a bunch yeah. of people getting injured. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that we have, I mean, I'm sure there are metrics on that. Um, I think shotgun accidents are probably the most common uh, hunting accidents that occur and it's probably revolves around dove hunting, but I don't think that's centered on public lands. Right. Um, I think most people that are going to pay the $48 to go hunt a public spot and they're going to take the time to go out there and try to hunt it are pr- probably pretty ethical and safe Yeah. in general. Uh, the times I've been out there, no problems. Yeah. Most people communicate well. They're friendly yep. responsive you know certainly the ones that can be really crowded like on opening day that can be i personally avoid opening day public sure. land just because it is so crazy yeah uh and at that point i'm just like i'd rather stay home and yeah. go later um but yeah I, I think for the most part people are pretty safe yeah. that's been my experience on public lands and and uh, when I was a junior and senior in high school, my buddy's dad had a lease in South Texas and he would take us hunting. And and so that was how, that was my introduction into hunting really. And then I went to college and um, I bought a Winchester 870 Express Magnum. So it'll shoot those three <laughs> inch Magnums because you never know. And uh, so technically he's a wingmaster. And, um, and I bought a public land permit and around San Marcos, which is where I went to school, um, you know, I'd go out to these fields and I never had any issues and it was, and I found for myself, since it was new to me, that I was overly cautious about everything mm-hmm. and and very uh, considerate of where other people were and making sure that I wasn't pelleting them or what have you, you know. But I will say, the first time I got pelleted, I was like, "Oh man, how dangerous is this?" You know, and mm-hmm. I realized like it's it's like small hail at that point. Right. You know, it's just <laughs> not really going to hurt you. It's not breaking skin. But um, I, I've also gone down. South Texas. And I'm trying to remember what the unit was, but, um, I had a pointer at the time and I would go quail hunting in this area. God, it's right on the edge of a lake. There's a bunch of public land. It was incredible. And just went out with a buddy and we were just, just walking land and flushed a handful of cubbies. Some javelinas came out at one point mm-hmm. and it was like, this is amazing. This is public land and it's so great. And I think that the, the challenge, the, the biggest challenge with Texas is that it's so privately held. And of course, um, you know, you go out to Black Gap and stuff. There's some spots where there's really large acreage, but mostly these are these smaller sections kind of all over the place. And I know a lot of folks would be really excited to see, you know, more and more public land that's added where people can recreate where, you know, out West, so much of that was reserved before it was developed and acquired and sectioned off, you know, in the, in the 17 and eight, or well, I guess in the late 1800s. And, uh, but I remember the first time experiencing that and you go out, to to some area and it's blm or it's it's just public state land and you just camp and you walk and you hunt and you ride bikes and whatever Mm -hmm. i remember the first quail hunt i did was uh 
was in Arizona. And I was driving around with pack mule stuff, but I had my Jeep and I had a shotgun. It was quail season. I was like, man, I heard about Merns and Gamble and I'm going to go find some. And I found this spot and I'm driving around as this old cattle ranch that had been turned into a public land. And I've got a shotgun and I'm just thinking this is weird. I'm driving around on land and I don't have like a public land permit thing. And I don't have a, you know, I haven't checked all the boxes and I'm making sure this is okay. And I eventually by the old ranch house, I see a, a, a park ranger and I pull up and I said, sir, I just, inter- you know, introduce myself. want to make sure this is public land I can hunt on. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Have fun. I've got a shotgun with me. That's cool. Right. Like I'm going to go hunting. <laughs> yep. I'm going to drive all over the place, wherever. Yep. And other people might be out here doing other things. Right. Yeah, they might be. And, you know, people that are actually bird watching might not love you. And <laughs> just uh, but there might be people that are driving four wheelers around. Yeah. And I and I remember thinking, like, this is the most incredible thing. This full access public land mm-hmm. where it becomes this melting pot of all people doing all things. And it's all OK. Yeah. You know, where in, in Texas we grew up with this. Am I on the right side of the fence? Can I be there? And, you know, people are very territorial. Such a foreign concept. I it's know. so foreign. And, um, but I've loved going out West and I continue to get more excited about, uh, as Texas keeps acquiring these lands, it gets me so fired up, uh, with TPWF buying them and turning them over to state parks and then to WMAs, the powder horn, that whole section of WMA that got mm-hmm. opened up has been great. And then, uh, and then knowing that the park out it, uh, What's the new park at West Texas that's getting opened? Uh, it slips my mind. Any event, probably mine too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any event, it's it's uh, it it gets me fired up knowing that at some point we'll have a little bit more of that, mm-hmm. you know, large land stuff. And I believe there are a lot of landowners that are excited about it because there are so many landowners that share their land and say, "We'd love for you to come out and be a part of." this thing that I own that brings me so much joy. It's selfish to own it mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. And so they, while they're alive, you know, they bring people out and share it. And, and a lot of those people are the ones that are, are working with Texas parks and wildlife to, to turn that land over so that it can become public. Just that generous spirit, uh, which has been so incredible to watch mm-hmm. among Texans sharing land with Texans um, and the camaraderie that happens out in the field. You know, you meet, people from all different walks of life that are out there just, you know, leaning against a tailgate waiting for a dove to fly over. Made a lot of friends that way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And right now uh, there's nothing official, but it seems like there's a sense of, of urgency in, in our agency right now to kind of grab land while we can. um, Cause they're not making any more of it. That's right. As more people, you know, move into Texas and we, our population grows, that's just going to get harder and harder. Yeah. And I think you see the same thing on the flip side. A lot of landowners, like you mentioned, are starting to realize that too. The hesitancy there is, right now is kind of like, what does that really look like in Texas? Like mm-hmm. you mentioned out West where people just have basically free access yeah. to do whatever they want. Uh, that's a big fear for landowners in Texas is, is people trashing up the place, mm-hmm. people ruining what they've built, what they've spent so many years and so much money to build. Yeah. And uh, so I think those kind of kinks are being worked out, but I, would guess in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to start to see a lot more properties uh, acquired by by Parks and Wildlife and maybe some shifts in how we operate public lands. Yeah. Because um, I think that's that's on the forefront of everybody's mind right now Yeah, is how to make that look better, you know, and how to provide more access. Because that really is a limiting factor right yeah. now for, for everybody. On the WMAs, what is the, what is the function of those 
you know, I know that there's drawn hunts and I know that in some cases you're saying you can go uh, for the dove hunt. Is there, is there general access that the public has to go just be out there? Like mm-hmm. it's any point, can somebody with a public land permit go out and walk around a WMA or, mm-hmm. and can they camp out there or camping's not so much the it's, thing? It's all WMA specific. Um, highly recommend before you want to go hunt, bird watch anything to contact the WMA directly. Uh, yeah. Directly. Uh, you can go on the website and find, you know, their list of like the 2023, 24, uh, hunting dates and what they allow and that kind of stuff. Sometimes they'll close the WMA down if they have a drawn hunt. Yeah. They don't want anybody out there for that. Um, you know, and each one has different rules, but for the most part, yeah, you can bird watch. You can, uh, you can do certain things on certain WMAs. Yeah. Part of the WMA function, I think, is to preserve, um, habitat in key areas. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is a lot of our WMA biologists will say this is that it's kind of a demonstration area. Like this is how, if you apply these habitat management techniques, this is what your property will look like. And so landowners in that area can see that and they can kind of help promote, you know, those, those activities. Yeah. Uh, and then the other part would be the public access, public use uh, kind of thing. So uh, there's all that kind of mixed in. Yeah. And our WMA folks are very, very passionate about the properties they're on yeah, and they do incredible work. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, each one's unique and each one has uh, kind of a unique personality, both in the in the land and the people that work there. Yeah. You know, they kind of get their little WMA groups. Yeah. Uh, but I think to me that that lends part of the fun of going out and experiencing that. Certainly. So, yeah, I definitely recommend calling calling them and reaching out and uh, getting specifics before you head out there. But yep. certainly they they want you out there. I mean, they you know, they that's the purpose. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Let's ask some specific, uh, uh, dove questions. Okay. So dove are migrating how many miles where, where are they during the winter or excuse me, during, I guess the summer before they migrate into Texas. So, uh, morning doves breed everywhere from Southern Canada to Mexico. Okay. Southern Mexico, uh, East coast to West coast, very wide range where they migrate to is, very dependent on the individual bird hmm. and what its lineage <laughs> is, you know, the, in, the instinct, uh, to migrate or not. There are birds and we know all this from decades of banding, banding records and band recovery records. Some birds don't go anywhere. You know, we have resident birds in Texas around here that don't leave. Uh, they're here year round. Some birds might go a couple of counties. Some birds might fly to Southern Mexico and back. Interesting. Uh, white wings. Um, you know, we're starting to see them expand or we have been seeing them expand the past couple of decades. Uh, north, so the they've got a really interesting history in Texas. The southernmost four counties in the Rio Grande Valley, so Willacy, Star, Cameron, and Hidalgo, were the only places you could find white wings. Maybe some in El Paso, Big yeah. Bend. Uh, historically, uh, in Texas, that, that's where they were. That was the very northern extent of their range. So the rest of it's all in Latin America, all the yeah. way through Central America. And that's why I remember it was always rare to find a white winged dove. Yeah, it was always a border thing. Yeah, right? you want to hunt them, you go down in the South yeah. Texas. And uh, now, you know, where I grew up in the piney woods of Northeast Texas, there's white wings in the pine trees. Yeah. And so they have, over the past few decades, just started to expand. And uh, everywhere outside of South Texas, where they still use that original kind of habitat, they've kind of become urban birds. I mean, you see it here in New Braunfels. Yeah, yeah they Austin. fly around out here. Yep. And uh, they're very, very closely associated with urban habitat. And that's what we what we're seeing range wide. So New Mexico, Arizona, California, they're doing the exact same thing. Interesting everywhere there. But they historically were migratory, uh, and we still have some that we ban. That we, you know, we'll get reports from Nicaragua, El Salvador. Wow. They go a long wow. way. 
a lot of them all the way from here all the way from here uh and i think a lot of the ones that have moved into the cities they probably don't go anywhere yeah you know maybe the northern cities like dallas dallas and lubbock and those areas just because it gets cold they might move um but we really don't know and actually uh we're funding a study that's supposed to kick off this next spring putting uh gps telemetry devices on white wings in urban areas to kind of start understanding where they go, how they're using these urban landscapes. Cause we really don't know. Wow. You know, we assume they're eating backyard bird feeders. Yeah. Drinking in puddles in people's yards, Sure, you know, but outside of that, we really don't know. That's incredible what they do. That's incredible. And so if you're a landowner, what type of habitat do you want to create to attract dove or hold dove or what have you? Really? Uh, you need during the breeding season, you want some, when's the know, breeding season? That would be like, uh, say April through July, August. Okay. Uh, you want, if you have some mature trees and some food nearby, mm-hmm. and that could be ag food, agriculture, that could be small grains, that could be native foods, um, hay fields, anything, anything the birds can find seeds, uh, cause they need that nutrition. You know, they're, they're cranking out babies, they're incubating yeah. all that. They need a, a high level of nutrition, nutrients. What would be uh, some examples of, of native foods that they would just find that might be on somebody's property? Uh, a lot of grasses, um, annual grasses. sunflowers a lot, right? Yes. So yeah. yeah, sunflower, annual sunflower, the native sunflowers is a big one. Uh, dove weed or croton is another, uh, annual forb, annual weed that, yeah. that grows a lot. Um, pig weeds and, and all the other annual weeds that people kind of like to mow down. Those are usually good food sources. Uh, okay. but don't, don't neglect grasses. Everybody wants dove weed, you know, cause it, they know that it's called dove weed. Yeah. Yeah. That people are attracted to that. But if you have a good native pasture with a lot of, uh, love grasses and windmill grasses and things like that, that's morning doves prefer that stuff. Oh, really? And so they, they feed a lot. I mean, they can really feed it. Morning doves can feed on like 500 plus different plants in wow. Texas. Um, so really it just comes down to having a, a diverse food source that they can access. Uh, and that means if your field's too thick, um, with, you know, morning does need to feed on the ground. Mm-hmm. They scratch around, they find seed on the ground. So if, if you have a field that's too thick, uh, they can't really get in there. You know, if you have, if you don't have enough food. So sometimes it just kind of depends on, um, how much rainfall you get and what you're managing for. You know, a lot of times ag fields, people see them in ag fields in the spring like say a milo field or a sorghum field, and they assume they're probably trying to get those those sorghum seed. Yeah. But a lot of times what they're doing, because the sorghum seed hasn't really seeded out yet, hadn't headed out, what they're doing is feeding on all those grasses around the edge of the field. Oh, interesting. You know, uh, things like that. So you need some food or at least food nearby, uh, but you need some nesting habitat. That's, yeah. you know. Um, oak trees. Oak trees. Um, yeah, big mature hardwood trees are usually better. You know, and then you need, if you have water, that's always a key, yeah. you know, especially. Yeah, everybody wants to hunt around a tank. Let's yeah. go sit by the tank. Are yeah. they really flying in and, and yeah. pulling water out of the tank? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So especially in a summer like we just had. Yeah. Or like we're still having. Yeah. <laughs> uh, water is, is definitely key. I yeah. mean, I was on a hunt about a week ago. Or the Abilene week hunt. Ago, uh, the Abilene hunt. And we had a big tank behind us, a couple hundred yards behind us on a different property that we couldn't hunt. And those birds were coming in and watering and then coming to us. And so literally some of the birds that we shot, we, it felt like rain coming down. They had so much water in them. Wow. It was just like. That's incredible. Yeah. So they're loading up. They can drink like 15% of their body weight in water. Wow. Just load up on water. So uh, they're really adapted to dry conditions. Yeah. You know, I, drought's not as bad as, as bad form usually as much, some people might think. Sure. Yeah. Going back to, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. And then I was going to say, finally it would be just cover like loafing cover, roosting cover, 
And that kind of goes back to, to trees, mature trees, um, places where they can get in at night that a predator is not going to get them. Uh, so food, water, and cover is, is just like any wildlife. That's just essentially like what they need. Wow. And doves are pretty generalists. I mean, you know, morning doves nest in pine trees on the ground, depending on where they're at. Huh. Um, really, it's just about having available resources in an area that they can access. They don't want to be flying 15 miles to the next water source. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. That's incredible. I, um, you spoke of Nick Rasses and people under underrate them. Uh, there's a regenerative farm up here. And they bring the the pigs around, clear it out, and they put down this native chaos seed. And he said that since they've been doing that the last three or four years, they've noticed more birds coming in and mm-hmm. more dove coming in because they would prefer that over how the terrain has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting to see um, how they respond to that. And yeah. Stuff. And, and instinctually. Yeah. And those native food sources are so much more nutritious than, you know, corn or sorghum or, you know, it's kind of like us eating uh Camp, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, candy versus, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you could survive off candy and sugar, I guess, corn syrup, natural. but you need nutrition, you need yeah. those vitamins. And so, uh, morning doves, especially, I mean, there's a number of cases in research studies where they prefer native foods over if they have native foods here and ag here, they're going to eat the native foods first and mm-hmm. then hit ag when they need to. But, uh, but ag is important. I mean, agriculture has been very important since. Since more, since people came uh, to, since Westerners, I should say, uh, came to North America, we think, at least the books I've read, they think that there weren't near as many morning doves back before uh, Europeans showed up in North America than we have now. Because basically, as we moved west, we cleared all this land for agriculture, planted windrows, and just created the perfect morning dove habitat. And so they used to be just kind of an East Coast species, and now they're you know, they used to be east and then west coast, and now they're kind of ubiquitous across North America because of wow. of the landscape changes. I think uh, a lot of people think about dove, especially in our circles, is about dove hunting. Is there like a really good fact, something super interesting about doves outside of hunting, or something when you go dove hunting you would want everyone to know about these creatures? I mean, they're really incredible. Uh, just in general, um, there's. Dove flying in right now. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. There's some, uh, some tall grasses and stuff over there and uh, a little bit of sunflower. And they, yeah. they fly around pretty good. We actually, our wildlife uh, habitat here is pretty incredible. We had a baby rattlesnake out front of the entry doors at, uh, a week or so ago. We relocated yeah. over into the into the pasture. We had an right earthworm terrarium. And the- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good soil. Good soil. Uh, you know, Texas has more dove and pigeon species than any other anywhere else in the U.S. So that's a cool fact that a lot of people don't know. Uh, morning doves, white-winged doves, white-tipped doves, which are the other game species uh, found along the border. We have band-tailed pigeons out in West Texas. And then we have red-billed pigeons, which are the Rio Grande border. And then we have uh, common ground doves and uh, uh, Inca doves. And so seven different species plus wow. – Eurasian collar dove, exotics, rock pigeons. We have another couple species that are kind of occasional show up in the U.S. But uh, yeah, we're we're kind of a good habitat in gen- just in general for doves and pigeons. Dove mecca, dove mecca, yeah. Uh, and are dove a, a mate for life type of an of a bird? <laughs> they're seasonally monogamous. Okay, a lot um, of them that probably means that they're mate for life because the average lifespan is like a year and a half. Okay, so so. Uh, Probably, but I think I think if they had a chance to, you know, it's they yeah, pair sleep up sleep around. Season. Yeah, 
uh, all birds. And so that's another thing. If you've never taken an ornithology class is uh, extra pair copulations. That's, okay. what they, that's the official term for sleeping uh-huh. around. Uh, it's a genetically advantageous thing to do. Sure. Like you might pair up with the female might pair up with this dude cause he's, he's fit and he's yeah. got a good spot or whatever. Uh, but maybe that dude, you know, has some other trait. And so when he's not looking, you know, extra yeah. pair of I'm always being approached. You know? <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> like I, bird mating strategies is, was one of my favorite subjects in school and still is. I like, there's, there's so many different ways that they, that they do it. Yeah. And uh, it's it fascinates me. Yeah, you're fun at parties. Though. So, yeah. you, you, must, you must have a lot of uh, bird porn on your phone. Uh, uh, I used to. Uh, I used to when I was in Corpus. I was the uh, involved in the Coastal Bend Audubon Club for a while, and so every we'd always get these guest speakers every month. And whenever I couldn't find a guest speaker, I would just speak because I was kind of the local ornithology guy, and uh, I would always do this like bird. Uh, presentation about the reproductive strategies and it's a room full of like old lady Audubon <laughs> ladies and it just red faces and blushing yeah. and like, Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> like, it was one of my favorite things to do. That's every so year. Fun. I'm a fan of the adult avian uh, <laughs> niche. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite bird? Oh man. I've thought this about this a lot. Uh, it's not a dove. I've thought about this a lot over the years. I don't know that I have a favorite. I used to work with coastal birds before this job. I worked on, on in Corpus and we worked with colonial water birds. So herons and egrets and skimmers and terns. And uh, we also did a lot of shorebird work with these little, you know, all the little birds that run around the beach. Yeah. Uh, they all kind of look the same. Uh, there were a few select species that we'd work on. I call on. them mini seagulls. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> there, there's a lot of them. And uh, I, for some reason, I was always just really fond of terns and skimmers. Like, hmm. They're just, they always looked, uh, they just look clean and agile and just, they're just beautiful birds. I mean, something about them, uh, it's just always been my favorite thing. Yeah. Uh, skimmers, especially. Yeah. They're just very, very cool birds. If you don't, if people who are watching don't know what a skimmer is, uh, they have a specialized bill where their lower mandible is longer than the top mandible and it's really thin laterally. And they fly just above the water and they dip that lower bill in the water and kind of slice it through the water. And anytime they hit a prey item, they snap that bill up. So they have these special adaptations where their neck can bend down really hard in case they catch something solid or or whatever. And they're just really, really graceful. And they fly like this high above the water. Just That's incredible. Soaring around. It's really, really cool. Uh, osprey fascinate me mm-hmm. in terms of a uh, just impressive bird especially how they come down and then are like coming out of the water with with whatever the pound of mm-hmm. fish is underneath them w- watching some of those slow-mo videos of them trying to come up and how they're trying to catch air and lift their body out of the water with these you know three foot wings mm-hmm. or two two and a half foot wings on either side is pretty impressive to watch as well powerful uh, yeah. powerful birds yeah. yeah and then and then and then they rise up and you know, the fish is fighting, trying to right. still move its tail and swim down. And then all of a sudden it comes up out of the water and then there's this fish in its talons and woo, I'm going yeah. to my nest and you're dinner, buddy. It's cool. I, there's some slow-mo videos out there of them. Like once they kind of get up, get some elevation, they just pull their wings in and just like slow-mo, like a dog shake off all the water and then keep flying. It's just, these are the videos cool. he has on his phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the kind of stuff I watch <laughs> late at night. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> or even, um, you know, there's, I've got a cousin, kind of a distant cousin who's a, was a fighter pilot 
and I, he got really into falconry. Mm-hmm. And so I sent him a couple of videos of, uh, these, uh, like Cooper's hawks. They're mm-hmm. like, people would put cameras on a, on a hawk, these like tree dwelling type hawks. And they would just like seeing a bird's point of view going like 30 miles an hour through woods. And they're just, they're tucking their wings. And I mean, just incredible, incredible, uh, agility to do that. And I used to be like, you know, I don't care how much training you've got. You'll never be as good as this guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can never fly like this guy. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Awesome. It's not even like, I think what's super interesting to me is like, that's a job, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean that like with a lot of respect, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. You just don't think about all these animals, all these things that we see. And there are people whose job is to research them and track them and to understand and the importance And because what happens to them also defines what's happening to us, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's climate Mm -hmm. change or whatever. So I think it's super interesting. Absolutely. Birds are the, one of the best bio indicators is what Mm -hmm. we call them. Yeah. Yeah. If I see birds flying away, I'm I'm getting ready to run normally. Yeah. Yeah, There are a lot of people. (laughs) That's what the movies tell me. A lot of people that work incredibly hard. uh, Like I said, kind of behind the scenes, like especially the non-game folks. Like I'm in a position where even though there may have been some declines in doves in recent years, there's still a lot of doves Mm -hmm. and we're talking hundreds of millions. So it's not like they're a conservation concern, but there are people that that's all they do is conservation concern species. And it's like a race against time, a race against development. I think it's a, a lot more against, stressful job. Yeah. Cause you're just watching is. this thing that your study die you're, off. Yeah, you're fighting against humanity's progress in a lot of ways. And you're just trying to figure out a way to, to keep things, keep it sustainable. And yeah, conservation is tough. It's a tough field, but very rewarding at the same time. Yeah. It's awesome. But I find, I, I mean, I, I think it's true that, well, as you think about the history of, let's just say, North America, uh, Native Americans are here. They had a very deep understanding of of game and animals. And I think they were sensitive to die off and the different things. You know, they would they would use everything. They would only take what they needed, that type of thing. And I think that kept, kept balance. Europeans came in and we saw bounty and just... We're like, we can make money off this, mm-hmm. knock it all down. You know, like let's cut down the trees, let's shoot all the animals. That's when the market hunters were coming in and, you know, these huge guns on the front of boats, just waylaying ducks that were all, you know, on a float, mm-hmm. rafted up. And um, and now, generally speaking, most most people that that are conservation minded are hunters because they see the effect and the balance that the wildlife has on habitat and vice versa. And they're also the ones that are out there pursuing and engaging and, and monitoring what's happening because of their pursuits and recognize when things are changing and are the ones to call to action. Hey, something's going on here. What is it versus people that, you know, are just building houses and building buildings Mm -hmm. and who cares? Let's mow it down and pour some concrete. Mm -hmm. We need to make room for humans. And so it's such an important balance, the two and, um, and people say it's such a dichotomy that we hunt the things that we want to have around and we just want to have them around so we can hunt them. And I think, all of those things are are true in nature. You, it, it is a funny thing to consider, but we we don't necessarily want them around just to hunt them. Although we do, but we also understand their importance in cycles. And so when we go fishing, we realize that there's less redfish and trout. Well, why? They've mm-hmm. always been here. Are we overfishing them? Has habitat changed? Is there an inflow that blocked up so there's not enough water coming in? Is the salinity change? Is there not enough oxygen? What what's happening that mm-hmm. these that these fish are disappearing? And um, it's uh, so it's kind of we're, we're we are 
are we are advocates for these things that we love and um and publicly sometimes that's a weird thing for people to understand yeah it you bring up a really good point and we could talk another hour about that just in general but you know throughout history in at least the last 150 years no doubt to anyone's mind like you can prove it on paper hunters have funded conservation yeah by vast majority of of conservation that's taking place in america uh and as we see that demographic kind of shift where there's we're losing hunters or at least the proportion of population that hunts is dropping because there's more people and they just don't hunt really the we got to bridge the gap and find relate to people that don't hunt or that don't find value in the species and the the wildlife and the habitats that we do uh you just have to connect them somehow and and really just show them that you know this is a bigger part of the puzzle yeah and kind of like you mentioned like we're as hunters or as outdoors people we pay attention to there's less of this or things have changed what's going on yeah um you don't have to be a hunter to to value being outside and seeing these things that's right and we are all part of the ecosystem and we're all connected together with what's out there and um the species that we pursue whether we photograph them whether we shoot them whether we Mm -hmm. just like to watch them uh whether we don't really notice them yeah you're still part of it yeah and just i think for us you know we talk about r3 we talk about getting people recruitment retention reactivation is the the buzzwords to try to get people into hunting and angling and i've kind of thought like yeah that's a worthy pursuit but at the same time we have to bridge out and figure out ways just to bring other people in that aren't interested in those in hunting and angling in particular. Yeah. And just, um, you know, kind of like I used to say with the, the, uh, the ladies at the coastal Bend Audubon club, when they found out that I hunted birds as the president of the, of the Audubon club, like you're killing the birds that you talk to us about that we all love. I'm like, yeah, you know, hunters fund conservation. You might not believe in that, but at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We all want wild places and wild things to exist. And for, for its own sake, but also for us to enjoy future generations to enjoy. And so I think more than ever, all the different groups, no matter what uh, their backgrounds or what they really believe in, if it has a, a conservation component, whether you hunt or fish, it doesn't matter. We all need to band together yeah. and kind of point to the future because we're battling big changes on the planet that are happening faster than anyone can can react to. Really. Yeah. Uh, Owen, such a great time having you and uh, super interesting. Um, how's the how's the season look for for Dove as a as a sign off to, to today's conversation? Yeah, uh, I think we started out pretty strong. Um, the drought and really concentrated birds around water. A lot of a lot of people had good success. There were some other places where it was pretty slow. Uh, I think since the heat really hasn't broke yet, and we haven't had like these the influx of cold fronts that we yeah. typically do. Uh, we haven't really seen any birds pushing down. Mm-hmm. And so I think that things have kind of slowed down as the time of this recording. But as soon as we start to get some cold fronts, I think there's going to be some really good opportunities to get out and, uh, you know, jump ahead of those cold fronts and and do some hunting and catch those birds coming down uh, from the Dakotas and Kansas and, and Nebraska. That's awesome. So looking pretty good. Good. Well, as we'll Kansas said, I'm oh, sorry. It's great having you on, Owen. Yeah. Um, would love to know, you know, something we always ask our guests when they're here is what the outside means to them. So if you have like a sentence or two, just what the outside means to you being outdoors, a job that includes the outdoors, et cetera. I think uh, as of this moment in my life, this time in my life right now, just being outdoors and getting outside of the office, getting outside of the city setting that we all kind of live here on the I-35 corridor uh, and kind of brings me back to my roots, helps me kind of recenter 
my thoughts and get me back on track on, on why I do what I do and why I love to do what I do and why I would do this for free. Don't tell my bosses. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's Thanks incredible. for coming on, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Did you have any other question you 